Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Arscast Extra. Hello there and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. A very goodly morning to you, James. Goodly morning to you too. It's good to be back. Yes, welcome back. You've uh, you've obviously been uh, having some some fun times over the last week or so. Yeah, I've had a great I've had a great time. Uh, I got married on Saturday the second. Thank you so much for all the uh, tweets and messages I had from listeners and followers and all sorts. I have to say it was actually quite touching and heartwarming. Football fans can be you know they can be a, a tricky bunch at times, but people <laughs> were genuinely very lovely about that. So uh, I was. Very very grateful indeed. I thought, oh God, when I went when I went public saying, oh, I'm not doing the podcast, I'm getting married, I thought, I'm opening myself up here for potential criticism, but for the most part, people were brilliant. So well, that was nice. And then I've been chilling out in Cornwall for a, for a week or so. I ate a Cornish pasty. Well, as you do, seems like the thing to do down there. Like when you go to yeah. Denmark, what would you have? Only a Danish pastry? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, the, if there's a food with the name of the place in it, I drove past Cheddar Gorge and I thought, I almost stopped to think, I must eat some cheddar here. You know, it's that it's uh, it's it's a compulsion almost. Where else is there that has food in the name? Like Swiss roll, I guess. If you go to Switzerland, Swiss uh, roll. That's it. Um, I don't know. We could do this. We could do this all day, but we can't think of any more. So it'd be a short day. A short day's work. Uh, yeah, there's probably loads. Steakville. Burger Town, yeah. Hamburg, of course, <laughs> Hamburg, Frankfurt, Frankfurt, uh, yes, stew, uh, stew, Irish stew, place, yeah, gravy land, exactly, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, um, so you're, you're. It's been a quiet time for Arsenal, so you know I didn't miss anything. No, exactly. Yeah, time. there's been nothing going on whatsoever that required your attention or or thought. Yeah. Thankfully, I mean, in fairness, that was an amazingly well timed wedding and escape from the madness that was Arsenal. Because you know, you look at it, you say it's an interlull. That's a good time to get married. You know, work. Uh, you know, mm. we can we can uh, you know uh, get around that because obviously Arsenal is work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But fuck me, you did well to get out of Dodge. <laughs> to be Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I was very grateful for that. I have to be honest. I think it was incredibly healthy, and I'm really sorry for, for everyone else, every other Arsenal fan who had to endure the past week or so, because it does seem like it's been a pretty tumultuous time. I mean, I was conscious of what was going on, and that made me all the more determined to not really engage with it. Well, you know, to be honest, we've done it to death at this point on on the podcast. It has been, it has yeah. been discussed. It has been analysed. It has been. 
argued over and everything else. So I don't think we need to go back over it, do we? Unless you're feeling that masochistic that you would like to relive the end of the uh, uh, the last week of the season before the transfer, transfer window, window and all that kind of stuff. You know, I presume you don't. Uh, believe it or not, no, yeah. <laughs> I'm sort of happy to, to let sleeping dogs lie, really. Uh, I think, you know, you did a terrific job covering it with a bunch of other people. I think, yeah, let's just consign that to the past, if we can, until something goes horrendously wrong on the pitch and we bring up all those old grievances again. Absolutely. Uh, let's try and forget about it. When will we ever learn from all those things that we got wrong? OK, well, let's look forward then and look to the future because... Well, the future is very, very, very bright now, obviously, because we've beaten Bournemouth 3-0 and everything is right with the world once more. It's it's just I nice mean, the way things can change. Uh, just like that, the, the flick of a switch. The performance of champions. <laughs> champions elect. Uh, no, I mean, look... Uh, Let's let's talk about an actual game of football that we played, and believe it or not, that we won. We won. Uh, I mean, Bournemouth aren't on a great run. Let's let's get that caveat out the way, and then try and focus on some nice things about the nice football that we. Yeah, played. I think that's fair. I mean, you know what's interesting? It was uh, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday. Is you know when we play well, as we did against Bournemouth, but we also face opposition who are really poor. How do we, how do we measure where the line is between us being good and us them being poor, and us them being? Mm. <laughs> uh, obviously, since you've gone away, I've forgotten how to speak English. Um, yeah. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is the line between us playing well and them playing poorly, and them playing poorly because we've played well. If you know what I mean, that that's the thing. And where where does it become? Where does it become important? Like, is it ever important against a team like Bournemouth to say that, well, the reason they play poorly is because we played well, whereas if it's a team like Chelsea, for example, they play poorly because we played well, we can take much more positives from that. Does this make any sense to you whatsoever? Kind of. I mean, I've been in Cornwall, so I'm used to people not really speaking English properly. So I can kind of... (laughs) Well, well done. You've just fucked off our entire Cornish listenership there, James. Well, fantastic. Uh, uh, But listen, I I think what the case is, is that basically Arsenal have better players than Bournemouth, right? Like at at a neutral level of performance, we have superior players. Mm. So I think maybe the the nature of how well we perform has less bearing on the result ultimately but when you go against a team like Chelsea the the gap between the players is so much more fine that the, the way in which the teams perform on the day matters so much more yeah is there something to that maybe yeah maybe so I mean I think it was interesting I watched a little bit of uh, match of the day two extra before we started this and they were talking to Eddie Howe and he said well our you know the the important thing when you go uh, to a big away game is managing the early part of the game and we had a game plan our game plan was to attack Arsenal and I think that was an interesting thing for him to say because clearly there was the potential to uh, undermine 
our performance very early on because we were potentially very brittle as well coming into the game off the back of that 4-0 defeat at Anfield. Confidence was low. You could feel a bit of nervousness uh, even through the television. You could feel a little bit of nervousness early on in terms of the crowd. Um, And had Bournemouth gone for us and really made life difficult for us, you can understand how that nervousness, that anxiety would have transmitted itself from the pitch to the stands and from the stands to the pitch. Uh, thankfully, we got we got an early goal. I mean, uh, it just struck me that Bournemouth um, didn't really take advantage of how brittle we might be. But listening to Eddie Howe, they tried to, but just couldn't. That's it. And obviously, the early goal, absolutely crucial in that. I mean, both of our home games this season, we've got off the mark... Uh, very quickly indeed. It was Lacazette in, in the Leicester game. This, uh, you have to say, probably a, a less emphatic header from, from Danny Welbeck. <laughs> it was the most Welbeck goal of all time, wasn't it? The uh, the cross he accidentally the le- assisted himself. Yeah, he's like I said on the blog, it's a shampoo goal because it's uh, head and shoulders. <laughs> he just literally headed it onto his own shoulder. But I think, you know, people will say, look... It wasn't the most emphatic of finishes, but I remember Per Mertesacker scoring a goal in the FA Cup final against Aston Villa. Uh, the mm. third goal, I think it was, a, a corner from the left-hand side, and Mertesacker went up, and from where I was sitting, I was thinking, what a what a towering header, what an emphatic finish that was. He loafed that ball into the net. He just headed it downwards. It was brilliant stuff from the, from the BFG, and it turns out actually it hit his shoulder <laughs> and went in. Yeah. So, you know, it, it can happen. And I suppose the thing is, when you're in front of goal, once it goes in, it doesn't really matter that much how it goes in once it goes in. I think the issue we looked at last week, maybe the week before with the Stoke game, when Welbeck had a couple of good chances to put the ball away and didn't, that's a much more egregious uh, error for me than uh, than actually going in the net. Yeah, it could have been it could have been better technically, but at the end of the day, it's gone in, and that's that's really all I care about. Yeah, exactly. It certainly could have been prettier, but it got over the line, and I think it owed plenty, really, to uh, a brilliant assist. A uh, great run and cross from uh, Kolasinac, and yeah, Welbeck. I mean, look, he was he was in the right place at the right time. Let's give him that. Absolutely, absolutely. His positioning was great, and I think we saw the benefit of playing a left wing back at left wing back. I know it's yeah. crazy. Were you surprised that we had wing backs at all? In the I, game? I was a little bit surprised because I did feel like this, the back three thing might come to an end. And, you know, when we look at the game overall, Bournemouth were really poor. And I don't think that there was an awful lot to trouble us from a midfield point of view. But at times I was looking at our midfield and looking at the space that was there. Once again, Granite Xhaka about the only man in a sea of Bournemouth players that had the ball broken down. Had Bournemouth had better defenders, were they able to move the ball more quickly out of defence? I think the issues that we saw in the Liverpool game were still there with our midfield. Mm. So that's why I was... I was a little bit surprised, A, that we didn't put the extra man in midfield, but I can understand why he's sticking with this system. But I'm also just a little bit surprised that there wasn't a little more um, emphasis on midfield discipline, if you like. That Aaron Ramsey, I think, had a very good game, a very effective game going forward. He was involved in the first goal. He, He provided a great assist for the third goal. But I just thought there might have been a little more, hey, listen, you see what happened at Anfield? Maybe, maybe we should just try and be a bit more compact and keep our shape a little more in midfield. But there, there didn't seem to be any uh, anything 
in that regard at all. And it does make me a little bit worried about what better teams might do. Yeah, it wasn't as if after the Liverpool game they had gone away, sat on the training ground and you know tried to figure out how to fix the midfield problem. It was basically more of the same, relatively kind of cavalier stuff. We were able to get away with it on the day, but uh, as you say, better teams, and there is a better team potentially on the horizon next mm. weekend, um, may, may well be able to exploit that. Yeah, well, look, I mean, that's something we can uh, discuss, I guess, after the Chelsea game. We'll see if there's any any more emphasis on that because it's Chelsea. Perhaps they thought because it's Bournemouth that they could be a bit more mm. free-flowing and go forward a bit more. So we have to take that with a little bit of balance. Um, it, it was pretty much all Arsenal, though. Bournemouth did not have a lot to offer from an attacking point of view. Uh, Begovic in goal was was uh, was very good, very busy, made some very good saves, but we saw mm. the quality of Alexandra Lacazette's finishing with the second goal. Yeah, I love that goal. I really love that goal. There's a lot to like about it. I think Ozil's um, pass uh, in, in the build-up to it is actually... For, for Ozil, it's quite a long pass. You know, it seems to sort of really accelerate the mm. game for us there. And a uh, the little bit of link-up play between Welbeck and Lacazette. But the finish is so composed and he makes it look so easy. But he scored that goal from just outside the penalty box. He's just planted it in the top corner. And that's exactly the kind of composure and clinical touch I guess we hoped we were getting when we spent all that money on him. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's, he, he's not a striker. He doesn't seem like a striker who's going to have a load of shots in games mm. that he he does seem to be clinical in the chances that he does get but he's not going to wastefully shoot just because there's a half chance there if that makes sense I know we've a very That's small it. sample size with Lacazette at this moment in time because uh, you know he's only played a couple of games really but there's an efficiency to his forward play that I think is very interesting yeah, and I, I guess in some ways it makes him kind of antithetical to Alexis, who who is a bit more scattergun. You know, he'll take a shot on from from anywhere to try and score, whereas Lacazette bides his time, and when his chance comes, he he picks his spot. There's something very deliberate about everything he does, and he's so cool. You know, he, he never seems to panic. He seems to really keep his calm in those moments, and I think. Yeah, I mean, look, so far, so good. Obviously, when you don't want to go back to the Liverpool game, but when he scored that goal, you did think, why wasn't he on the pitch in that match? And mm. uh, I'm, I personally still feel frustrated he was robbed of a, a brilliant goal at Stoke as well, because, you know, that would put another shine on his record. But yeah. it, has been a, it has been a good start, and I think everything he does is pretty classy. He just doesn't do quite as much as some centre-forwards we've had in the past. He doesn't seem as regularly involved as others, but... He was chasing back in this game and it was him who, who retrieved possession for the third goal, wasn't it? So he, he, he was doing things, you know, to aid the team play. But he's really, he's really a finisher in a way unlike many centre-forwards we've had at the club in recent years. Yeah, I mean, I think we saw that even in the Leicester game, that there were times where he was, he was chasing back. And I think what was interesting is that teams weren't necessarily expecting that from Arsenal or from an Arsenal forward because when you're playing with Olivier Giroud up front he's a bit more static right he's not the guy that's going to chase back into midfield primarily because he doesn't necessarily have the pace to get up and down the pitch as, as you might like and I think mm. opposition are going to have to get a little bit more used to having someone like Lacazette in the team that you're not necessarily safe when you're bringing the ball out of defence you're not just moving away from a static uh, traditional centre forward this is a mobile guy who will try and get back and intercept 
Clifton win the ball back, and the effect of that was obvious with the third goal. It was a it was a great bit of work to win it back. Ramsey took it on and played a, a lovely pass to to Welbeck. And if we're going to criticise or perhaps uh, raise questions over Welbeck's finishing for the first, there can be no question whatsoever about his finishing for the for the third goal. Yeah, wrong foot uh, across the goalkeeper. I mean, you know, everything you'd want from a finish, really. And I suppose that is kind of the the intriguing thing about Danny Welbeck is that he can produce these moments of, of real skill. I mean, he almost scored a hat-trick with a, a brilliant chip. That would have been a, a remarkable goal. So he does have it in him at times. I just think for him, composure is a, a big, big issue. He's kind of the opposite of Lacazette in that respect at times. But uh, yeah, look... Good for him to get two goals under his belt. And that might help him. You never know, Arsene Wenger mm. intimated as much. He, he needs goals and that might improve his confidence in those areas. For sure. I mean, I think he spoke about it after the game as well. He says uh, the second goal is one that once you've been hitting those repetitions in training, it becomes a lot easier for you to do. I got into that position today and I didn't think twice about it. And I think the thing about Welbeck is that people will say he's not a good finisher. And that that's true at times. He's not the greatest finisher at times. But I think we have to add a little bit of context text to it. I think it's a it's more to do with a lack of consistency in his finishing than a lack of ability. Because if you think mm. back to that first season that he came, didn't he score a hat trick against Galatasaray? It was Galatasaray, it was. yeah, in the Champions League and people were raving about the finishes. Each of the goals, the individual finishes were fantastic. There were people talking about Thierry Henry, as they always do. Whenever an Arsenal player makes a good finish, they talk about Thierry Henry. And obviously that's overblowing it. But the ability is there. The finishing ability is there. It's the consistency. And I also think we have to take into account the big injuries that he's had. The fact that he's been out for six months, eight months, twice and then he's always been kind of playing a little bit of catch-up in terms of his fitness, in terms of his match sharpness, in terms of his touch, all those things that are so important for a player, and particularly a forward. I'm not saying that his finishing is, you know, it's to excuse him, but I think we have to put it in a bit of context. And he spoke himself about having a preseason. He said it's it's been a bit more difficult without a preseason. So this time around, there is maybe a little bit more confidence in in his finishing. And I think the goals will will definitely give him more confidence uh, in front of goal and as part of the team. And I think it's going to be quite interesting because he's in the team ahead of Alexis at this moment in time because Alexis is coming back. But it presents Arsene Wenger with a little bit of a dilemma, something to think about, that as Welbeck becomes more confident when he scores two goals and gets an assist as he did on Saturday, a really fantastic performance and a a fantastic return from a forward, Arsene Wenger now has has to... drop him for Alexis Sanchez. That's yeah. the reality yeah. of the situation that, that that Arsene Wenger faces. Does he does he damage his confidence by taking him out of the team? By putting in his best player, his best finisher, his best um, you know, the most productive forward we had last season in Alexis Sanchez? Or does he have to make a big decision about, well, this Welbeck is potentially the future or somebody who's gonna be there in the long term, whereas Alexis Sanchez may not be. Wow, that would be a huge call, wouldn't it? That would be a huge call to make. I mean, I wonder if in his mind, you know, we think back to Anfield, he spoke about the trio of Welbeck, Ozil and Alexis being one who he he really believed in off the back Mm. of last season. Is that something he might come back to still, you know, even though Lacazette is is seemingly firing them in? Do do you really think there's a chance that Welbeck could keep his place at at Chelsea, say, next week and keep Alexis on the sidelines? I don't know. I mean, it really depends on what what Arsene Wenger is thinking. Um, Mm. I mean, look... 
the way he's been picking his teams this season, you wouldn't be that surprised, would you? But obviously, I uh, sure. Uh, obviously, if if Alexis is fit, I think he gets in the team ahead of Danny Welbeck. What I do think is that when a player makes his mark the way Welbeck does or has done against Bournemouth. And again, the caveat, it is just Bournemouth. We have to see this kind of thing in bigger games against bigger opposition. But look, that's that's what all a player can do is when he's given a chance is take his chance. So yeah. I don't know. It's it's certainly something for him to think about. If it were me, of course, if Alexis is match fit and match sharp, he's in the team against Chelsea because I think we need that extra bit of quality that he has. But I do think that it is going to present Arsene Wenger with something of, if not necessarily a problem, definitely something to think about. Um, And maybe we'll get a better idea of what he's thinking when we see the team on Thursday against Cologne. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there is a way, I guess, you could squeeze them all in. If you went back to the kind of 4-2-3-1, you could have Ozil at 10 and then Alexis and Welbeck on the flanks, Lacazette through the middle. It Mm -hmm. is doable Mm -hmm. if Arsene went back to form with that formation. So again, that could be something for him to think about. Mm. So speaking of Alexis Sanchez, he came on in about the 75th minute and there were a lot of cheers to have him back. (laughs) (laughs) And there were, in fairness, quite a few few boos. Um, What was your reaction to that reaction? I was a little bit surprised, I guess, but to be honest, I, I mean, I, I think it's a bit of a misinterpretation, really, of what's gone on. I mean, I don't think he necessarily agitated to move, is my understanding, at any at any rate. It, the club are the ones who kind of suddenly folded on what they'd said all summer and made him leaving a distinct possibility. And I don't think it's his fault that that happened or his fault that it broke down. So... Personally, I don't feel too aggrieved. I understand his reasons for wanting to move on. I know that you know we want players who want to play for the club, but I understand why why he felt that way. And I don't think he did anything particularly awful over the course of the summer to damage his his standing among the fans. What about you? Yeah, pretty much the same. I mean, I think when you look back at situations like this in the past, there have been players who have agitated a lot more in public and a lot more behind the scenes which has more or less made their position at the club untenable. And I think Alexis Sanchez could have made life a lot more difficult for Arsenal this summer. He could have made it much more difficult for Arsenal to keep him this summer. I don't doubt that he wanted to leave. I think we all know that he wanted to leave. And people will get upset by that because, uh, you know, if you don't want to play for Arsenal, fuck off and all that. We get, I get that point of view that certain people are going to have that point of view. But I think he could have made it a lot more difficult for Arsenal to keep him. And as, it, as you rightly point out, it wasn't Arsenal who in the final week of the transfer window opened up lines of communication with Manchester City. Um, or sorry, it wasn't Alexis Sanchez. Who, it was Arsenal, rather. It was yeah. Arsenal, yeah. It was Arsenal who did that. It was Ivan Gazidis who was talking to the Manchester City chief executive. It was Arsenal who said, yeah, we'll sell him as long as we can get Thomas Lamar. So it was Arsenal mm. who made a balls of that situation in the final week of the season. Sanchez has come back, looked happy enough in training, told Arsene Wenger that he's focused and ready to play. And I, I don't really understand why there would be jeers at him because of that to be to be perfectly honest i don't think he merits those those uh those boos or that kind of reaction and you can be guaranteed that if alexis sanchez cracks in the winner against chelsea at stamford bridge on sunday there'll be nobody 
uh, giving him a hard time or nobody complaining about what happened this summer. Not one person. Well, that's it. Absolutely. I mean, I think even if he'd scored against Bournemouth, it probably would have, which he came close enough to doing, I think he probably would have got rid of some of those jeers. Um, yeah, I, I think it's inevitable that there'll be a little bit of dissatisfaction with the player, but I don't think that this is a case like, say, a Robin Van Persie or something like that. And uh, I, I'm sure Alexis and Ozil, they seem to manage their reputations, their sort of public, the public perception of them quite carefully this mm. summer. I thought they did it pretty smartly, to be honest, uh, with a lot of what they said and did. Mm. Um and I think, <laughs> probably privately, the player's furious that the club sort of handled the last 48 hours of the window in the way they did, because I think it I think it did damage his standing a little bit and kind of through no direct fault of his own. Mm. Um, but there you go. Yeah. What's, what's your grunting about there? What were you thinking? I feel I, like you were going to say something. Well, the, uh, I think it happened while you were away, but the, the Mesut Ozil... Instagram thing, you know, where he he, he said, look, people can criticise ah, yes, me, etc., yeah. etc., you know, and I kind of get that. I kind of feel that he is, at times, the brunt of too much criticism because of the way that he plays, because of his language style, his, um, his body language and all that kind of stuff. But there was also the, the stuff about, you know, the legends of the club they should support, you know, rather than criticise all the time. And I think that was a little bit misguided, to be perfectly honest. I don't really see that there was any merit in what he said there. I, if he mm. wants to stick up for himself, by all means. But what he's asking are players who are employed by television stations and radio stations etc., and newspapers not to criticize or not to analyze or not to to give their honest opinion on what happened but be cheerleaders and that's not what they're paid for by these people whether you agree with what they say or not that's a separate issue but you can't call on ex-players to just be blindly supportive of uh, players or a club because they used to play there you know you can understand them having a soft spot you can understand them being predisposed you know you look at somebody like Ian Wright who wears his heart on his sleeve and is uh, unabashed in his support and love for Arsenal. But it doesn't stop him being critical when it's required, right? Uh, that's why I just yeah. think the Ozil thing was a... If it was trying to stage manage something, it didn't quite work for me. Yeah, that was a misstep, I would say. But I think in regards to the way they've discussed their future, uh, you know, I think that they've been mm. quite... Uh, quite calculated about it in a way that has protected them uh, at times. Nevertheless, I did. I was a little bit surprised to hear Alexis cheered against Bournemouth. And I think, look, if we if we, if we want to stand any chance of kind of turning this season around, I know it's mad four games in to be talking about turning it around, but, you know, achieving anything like what we aspired to achieve this season, we're probably going to need him at some stage. Yeah, yeah. Starting, you know, this week uh, when, we yeah. go to, when we go to Chelsea. But look, I think in terms of what we needed to do after the Anfield game, we certainly did it and did it as well as could be expected. You know, had it not been for Begovic uh, and had we been a little bit better on the counter-attack, uh, I think we could have scored six or seven goals against Bournemouth, mm. to be honest. So it was about getting three points. It was about restoring some pride. It was about showing that there's more to this team than we saw at Anfield. And in that sense, we did it. It was what it was. The opposition are what they are. And all you can do is perform in those games. So we've done it. Now it's compartmentalized and we move on because there's a Europa League game on Thursday and then Stamford Bridge on uh, on Sunday. Yeah. 
and I, you touched on this on your, in your blog this morning, but it's a big week, isn't it? Because it it feels like not only are we trying to get over, you know, transfer deadline day and the Liverpool match, but this is kind of a, a forerunner for what's going to happen over the next few months. We, we've got a European fixture followed by a pretty tricky Premier League game. And, and the way in which Arsene balances his squad and manages that situation is going to have a huge determining impact on, on our season, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like a week that could put things more back on track or send us off the rails again. You know, I think the the Chelsea game in particular, whatever people want to think about the Europa League, I know that it divides opinions. Some people say, don't take it seriously, it's a distraction. Other people will say it's a chance at a trophy, a European trophy. Leaving that to one side, another big away game against big opposition, we have to... We have to get something from that game. There's no question yeah. about it. It's, not, it's it, To me, it's, it's not necessarily a must-win game, but it's absolutely 100% a must-not-lose game. So how we approach that on Sunday yeah. is going to be very interesting. Yeah, and maybe even the tactics will reflect that. I mean, I can't imagine we can go into that game with Aaron Ramsey playing his free role in central midfield again. I know we touched on it earlier, but I think uh, that is a massive, massive game and another heavy defeat there. That's the thing about this Bournemouth win. I'm I'm very up for being positive about it, but I kind of look at it and I go, well, these are the games we probably will win. Yeah. <laughs> and I look at the Chelsea match and think, oh, God. <laughs> well, no, that's it. Them. I mean, that's it. That. The, you know, the Bournemouth game, you, you're expected to win that game and, you know, there's no easy games and no one has a divine right to win, blah, blah, blah. But it is, when you look at the the, uh, the quality of the players and the quality uh, of both squads, on paper it's a game you would expect Arsenal to win nine times out of ten, especially at home. But the questions that mm. the Anfield game raised, and it's not that they're gone, they're just a little bit in distant memory now and we don't necessarily want to relive them but those questions have to be answered at Stamford Bridge is do they have the character do they have the discipline do they have the organisation is the manager tactically astute enough to get something from that game because the record mm. in big away games um, you know against the likes of Liverpool Chelsea Manchester United Tottenham uh, Man City has not been great over the last uh, few seasons. I think people, someone out there will hit us up with a uh, with uh, you know a statistic that shows just how bad it's been, and it's a continued failing. So it's about addressing an ongoing issue, a fundamental flaw in the makeup of this team. And if people can see that has been addressed, and if there is a performance at Stamford Bridge on Sunday that shows we have learned that we're capable, that we can deal with these games, then maybe it will instill a bit more confidence, A, in the players and B, in the fans. So it's a, it's a big, big, big game, this. It is a big game. It is a big game. But first, Cologne. <laughs> Cologne on Thursday. Look, I'm interested. I'm, I find myself interested in this game because of because of what it means um, to the way the manager is going to send out his team, because we do have a Chelsea game three games later. Do you feel the same way? Do you, do you feel like Thursday to Sunday feels somehow shorter than Wednesday to Saturday? I think it does. And I think that there are actually 
sensible reasons for that. And one is that how often do we actually play at 3pm on a Saturday? Often we're on a Sunday or mm. at 5.30. So Wednesday to Sunday, for example, feels to give you a bit more distance. And then you've got Champions League games on a Tuesday as well. Mm. So I think over the course of a season, alternating the Tuesday, Wednesday, that you get an extra day here and there. You get an extra day by playing on Sunday. Whereas Thursday to Sunday... It's set in stone, isn't mm. it? I mean, that's that's when you're playing, and you, and uh, it is it is a short gap. So, I can see. I also wonder if there's like kind of a motivational element. I mean, the Champions League is such a prize for some players to be competing in. I know we didn't always necessarily perform like that, but maybe it kind of helps you get up for it. Whereas I think with the Europa League, it might feel like more of a I don't know, more of a slog going off to these kind of, uh, you know, far, far flung destinations with less glamour attached to it. Maybe that has a psychological impact on the players too. Maybe, maybe. But I mean, maybe also there is an element of it pri- helping you prioritise the, um, the Premier League. That yeah. perhaps there's less of a shine on the Europa League, so the Premier League feels a bit more important. So I, I don't know. It'll be very interesting to see how we approach these games and what he does in, in terms of his team selections and uh, and everything else. Uh, you know, I think he's going to rotate. Questions about that? Yeah, so we, I think we we'll get to those questions in a second. Um, yeah. Anything else from the weekend that um, that caught your eye from a Premier League point of view? Uh, what did you make of uh, the Mane sending off? That seems to have been a big talking point. But as someone who wasn't really around, I sort of didn't massively understand why. <laughs> um, yeah, I think on first viewing, I thought it was a bit harsh. When I looked at it, I thought, well, that's that's a bit harsh. But then when you see replays and you see pictures of it, you know, basically his foot is five foot off the air and ends up in the goalkeeper's face. Uh, I don't yeah. know why there's any debate about it being a red card. Of course, it's not deliberate. It's an accident, but it's reckless, and um, it's obviously very obviously a red card. I mean, very rarely does a player go out to do another player to like cause him serious injury. We've seen a couple down the years, of course, but in in general, serious injuries are caused by reckless, late, or dangerous tackles. Nobody goes in to try and break a player's leg or try and put their studs in a goalkeeper's face. But when it happens, you have to accept the consequences. And that's uh, that's a red card for me all day long. Yeah, I agree that uh, there was no intent to harm the player. Um, but that doesn't really matter. It's still a really dangerous challenge. So he had to go. He had to go for it. I, what else did I see in the Premier League this weekend? I'm just trying to have a think. Um, I was just glad that Manchester United didn't win again because it was really upsetting me, that happening again and again and again. Yeah, I agree. I was sort of half watching it on a Saturday evening. Um, I was in the kitchen cooking and I think Stoke went ahead and then it was 1-1 and then it was 2-1 Manchester United. I was like, oh, God damn it. So I put some music on in the kitchen while I was working away and then I saw 2-2 and I was like, okay, I could live with this. I could live with this if Manchester United dropped some points. That's an ideal scenario because you sort of got the satisfaction of the 2-2 without having to witness or celebrate a Stoke goal. Yeah. Ideal. Or watch Stoke or Manchester United. That was was good. And of course, there was the the whole handshake thing between uh, Mark Hughes and uh, Jose Mourinho, which which is amusing to me. The real story of the weekend. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's focus on the big issues in the Premier League that managers don't shake hands. I mean, you you won't... uh, have to think too far back for a similar incident with Arsene Wenger and Mark Hughes. And uh, I think what happened a few years ago at the Emirates, I, could he have been in charge of, 
I can't remember who it was. Who was he in charge of before? He was Man City. He was Fulham, wasn't he? Blackburn. I can't remember. One of those fucking teams that he was manager of. But basically, he spent the whole game, the whole game, hurling abuse at Arsene Wenger from his technical area to the point where it was uh, it was told to me that Steve Bold had to be restrained uh, <laughs> from from having words. Um but he, Hughes basically was just abusing Arsene Wenger uh, in, in the technical area for the entire 90 minutes. And Arsene Wenger, at the end of the game, went, fuck off. I'm not, I'm not shaking hands with you. You've just been calling me names and telling me to fuck off. Now, why would I shake your hand? At which point, Mark mm. Hughes went, yeah, he won't shake my hand. So uh, it's amusing to see uh, Mark Hughes and his, his, I don't know, his obsession with shaking hands. Um <laughs> Just right, come to the fore again. He's just a big crybaby. He just loves shaking hands as well. He That's just, yeah, it's really one of his. Yeah. He got into football to shake hands, ultimately. Yeah. That's it. Just to shake hands with it, people. He loves it. He gets some sort of weird thrill from it. I heard that Mark Hughes goes to Mass four times every day because uh, during Mass. The priest says, Let, let's offer each other a sign of peace. And you turn around and you handshake with people next to you and people behind yeah. you. That, he loves that so much that he goes to church four times a day just to shake people's just hands. Just to do that. Yeah. yeah. And imagine if someone refuses to shake his hand. Man, imagine what he does. He crucifies he them. The, that's <laughs> He literally takes them up onto the altar and he crucifies them and says, This mm-hmm. is what begets you when thou shalt not shake the hand of Mark Hughes. It's... um. Yeah. Shocking stuff, really. Every weekend, it's happening up and down the country, wherever Stoke are playing. Yeah, the other thing of that, though, is that he wasn't shaking hands with Jose Mourinho. So it was Mourinho not shaking hands with Hughes, and it was like, this is this is uh, gross. This is just grotty. Yeah. Yeah. It's making me feel a bit queasy, to be honest, the whole thing. All right, well, let's call it a day for part one, then, and come back with questions and more in part two right after this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two where we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter at Gunnerblog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog, from which comes the first comment. It's not necessarily a question, but this is Nick Singer 
on Facebook. Mm. He says, consider this. You lift the curse on James. He gets married, mm. in brackets, punching above his weight. He becomes mm. a YouTube sensation. He is on a successful TV program, and he survived a serious car crash without injury. And look at the state of Arsenal. Please reinstate the curse, and if you can't bring yourself to do that, then simply banish him. He can still do the podcast, though, because I like that. <laughs> what would banishment be if, I, if I'm still... I'm just kept in a room somewhere where I only do the podcast, basically. Like Rapunzel. Yeah, exactly. Repodcast. Repodcast. Um, but you, you I, don't have the hair yes. to let down, unfortunately. No, sadly not. Maybe I could just grow the back bit of it. I don't know what would happen. <laughs> like it would a look very strange. <laughs> like a giant mullet that you could lay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My long, winding mullet. Mm. Um, Nick makes a worryingly good point here. Mm. It's distressingly good. Um, but obviously I'm conflicted here because I love Arsenal, but I also love not being cursed. I yeah. think really the power lies with you. It's your decision. I mean, how I survived the serious car crash, the car I found out a couple of days ago is the car died in that accident. The car has not survived it. Um, and yet I've walked away. Mm. Something's something's very much different in the universe. True, but it would... I, as much as I would like Arsenal to win, I would feel terrible if I were to curse you again and something bad actually happened to you. I don't know that I could live with that. Well, not even the, the not even now. the Premier League trophy, James, would make me feel. I mean, I'd enjoy it, and I'd maybe come visit you in whatever place you are, or wherever that might be. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's dangerous, isn't it? Well, you have to think of my wife now as well. That's the problem. You That's know, if it. You, if you curse me and something terrible befalls me. It's someone else's life you're you're affecting now. Oh God, so, this is getting really hard. Because <laughs> I was I thinking really of it. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, it was in the balance. Um, but I mean, look, I, let's say this: let's reassess the curse situation after the Chelsea game. Okay, okay, that's okay. Fair. That's I'm, fair. Let's we'll, we'll see how we cope against Chelsea, and if it goes as wrong as we fear, then let's talk about being cursed again. And I'm I'm open to it as a prospect. All right, but let's give me these seven days grace, a honeymoon period, if you will. Yes, before the curse comes back in full force. All right, okay. I'll, we'll talk about this next Monday then. Um, the other thing yeah. I wanted to talk about very quickly before we went uh, go into the questions is the. Uh, the net spend thing that we had uh, done for this transfer window. I didn't bother oh, looking it up. good Lord. <laughs> I, I didn't even bother looking it up because neither of us suggested that we would end up in profit. So we both got that one completely wrong. It's just one of us was less wrong than the other. I was very wrong. I was like, the club... In my head, I was thinking, well, having dropped out of the Champions League, the club will need to make a statement. I thought we'd be... I, th I can't remember. It might have been 100 million, I thought, in my mind. So... Sorry, guys, but I don't know what I'm talking about. Mm. All right, well, look. Click uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on that, uh, there was a departure, or there will be a departure, from the uh, the administration, the transfer team, in the next couple of weeks, because Dick Law, his contract is expiring this month, and he is going mm -hmm. back to America. Ivan Gazidis confirmed that he will be going back to America to spend time with his family. It's the end of... It's the end of Dick Law. Um, yeah. That's it, yeah. No more Dick Law jokes. A real blow. 
Mm. Um, so anyway, I have a question. A curious yeah, one. go on. Yeah, go on. Let's let's chat a little bit about this, but then I've got a question about that as well. I, I just think it's uh, well. We'll see what the question is, but I think it's particularly interesting in the light of Arsene Wenger's fierce resistance to a director of football, given that the closest thing he has to that is leaving the club, and he probably knew that at the time. Mm. So, yeah, it, it's. Uh, create a, a vacuum, a, a bit of an executive vacuum at, the, at a club which kind of already had one. Yes. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what happens. Anyway, there we go. That's enough of that. Um, but look... <laughs> Shame not to hear that as frequently. Yeah, it will be. But look, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, we have a question uh, on this. It comes from Brian, who's at Gunner Faithful. And he says, uh, do you think Ivan taking over transfer duties will recreate a dynamic like Arson had with David Dean, where Arson just gave him a name? And there's uh, reports that Ivan Gazidis is now uh, has taken an office at London Colney and he's going to be much more involved in all this kind of stuff. Well, what's your thoughts on that? Mm. I'm sure Arsene Wenger will be giving I'm going to say lots of names but I don't think Lenny will be too kind um, <laughs> I, I, I I don't know I mean I had a question here from at charrybdis1966 on Twitter and they said do you think Ivan's replacement of Dick Law was a sop given to him for the rejection of his director of football idea um, it is an odd kind of shuffle at the top isn't it I, I don't there have been stories in recent months that Gazidis has been more involved than ever before, really, in the transfer side of things. I don't know if that's what you've heard at your end too, but that's certainly something that in this window and in fact last summer too, um, there was a, a lot of talk about. And maybe there has been kind of a gradual shift towards Gazidis handling more negotiation Um than Dick Law, which Dick Law has done previously in the past. Mm. I mean, I don't really know about that, but what it strikes me as, whatever you think of Dick Law or how he's operated, um, the issues that we have are that we're not well enough staffed in that particular area, right, when it comes to transfers, yeah. is that we don't have the structures and the mechanisms in place to do transfer business as well as we should. So if you've got a chief executive of a football club and you've got a manager, which is fine, and then you have a chief negotiator, somebody who can deal with clubs directly, and Dick Law didn't just deal with clubs, he was dealing with uh, player contracts, uh, renewals, all that kind of stuff. If we're losing him, whatever you think of the way he operated, we're down a person, and we're down a person who did, uh, who was given very um, important work to do, that he had big responsibilities Maybe he hasn't done it as well as he should have, but it strikes me that we need to find somebody else to do what Dick yeah, Law I, did, right? I mean, Dick Law is, I, I believe, trilingual, you know, fluent in three languages, has a, a massive network um, and knew pretty much every scout and agent out there fairly well uh, and, and, and was, despite his reputation among Arsenal fans, was relatively well respected and seen as someone who, while he what didn't have the authority to act without Arsene Wenger, um, was certainly in a, a very prominent position at Arsenal. 
I mean, that said, he was just kind of one guy. And, uh, and anecdotally, the day before the transfer deadline in this most recent summer, there was a period of like four or five hours in the afternoon where I, I know more than one person who were trying to get hold of Dick Law and they just, he just was, his phone appeared to be off. And it's like, <laughs> what's happening in that time? Do you know what I mean? What's going on? Like, who else is on the case? And what we, we're looking at a club in Arsenal where we've been look, hoping for someone else to come in and fill that executive role. We're now losing Dick Law and... I don't know. I think that the question that I read out might have something to it. Maybe having been denied uh, a director of football, having been denied a replacement in manager, really, maybe they're saying to Gazidis, well, look, you can have a bit more control on the player side of things. We're gonna, with, when Dick Law goes, you're going to get a bit more free reign. Not free reign, but, you know, a bit yeah. more responsibility on, on that side. Yeah, I mean, look, I, it, it, from what I understand of what Gazeta said at this fans forum meeting uh, last weekend, mm. it's not so much that Dick Law, it's not that his contract hasn't been renewed or there was a decision to let him go. It seems that Dick Law, at the end of his contract, has said, I want to go back to America and spend more time with my family. So it's not I don't think it's a power play between Gazidis and Wenger. I don't think it's Gazidis saying, your man is out and I'm in. You know, I think this mm. is some natural attrition, if you like, from from the setup. And it's now how they deal with that. Because if it's just going to be Ivan Gazidis and Arsene Wenger doing this from now on, well, you know, I think that that would be a big mistake. I think we have brought in this guy, Husfami, to deal with player contracts, how involved he is with the first team and the, the players uh, whose contracts are up for renewal. I'm not quite sure yet. But he would have worked in concert with Dick Law because that was part of what Dick Law did. Uh, I, I would be very worried if we didn't try and bring in another kind of football executive, somebody who could be perhaps a bridge to the director of football role that we all, I think everybody agrees that we need to put in place because the future demands it. At some point, we, we need to have a better executive structure for the football club, yeah. for when we have a new manager or a new head coach, as it is, who doesn't want to do all the things that Arsene Wenger does. So I would hope that his departure means we will appoint somebody with good knowledge of football, football contracts, the transfer market, transfer business agents, all that kind of stuff, to come in and work alongside Arsene Wenger and Ivan Gazidis. Not somebody who's going to come in and immediately be seen as uh, a threat to Arsene Wenger's authority or anything like that, but somebody who can help make it better, who can help us do business better, because we have fallen short, as we know, in recent years in doing transfer business the way that we should, both inwards and outwards. But if it's a case that Ivan Gazidis is planning to do all this, then I think, <laughs> then I'd be very worried indeed. I'd be very worried. I hope not. I, I hope not. I mean, I, I, I mean, I he's got he, enough to be go, going on with, with sorting out the commercial and business and marketing side and the revenues that the club are, are, are bringing in that are very stagnant in that regard. He's got enough to be doing in that regard. It's not to say he shouldn't be involved in this, but it shouldn't be a big part of what he does. That's not what, that's not what the yeah. chief executive of a football club really should do. Well, one can only hope that if he saw the need for a director of football type figure before, this will only have confirmed that and that the club will press on with that appointment. Mm. I think you make an interesting point. We think of Dick Law as being a guy 
heading up recruitment, which which he is, but there is a huge amount of work to be done, as we all know, on the contract renewal front. And this is, a, in theory, a delicate time to be losing the guy who handles contract renewals. You know, the, uh, we're supposed to be looking at extending the contracts of Alexis and Ozil. You know, there are other squad players who we probably would like to extend. There's talk of new deals for the likes of Danny Welbeck and Aaron Ramsey. So... This is a, a, a delicate time to lose that guy and we need to get somebody in quick who can help handle that situation because there is an enormous amount of work to be done long before the January transfer window opens in, in terms of the current squad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see We'll see what that brings. It needs to be resolved quickly. I don't know when the club knew that Dick Law was going to be off. Maybe it was after the transfer window, but they need. To, there was talk of him going, wasn't there, a few months ago. So maybe this has been in the air for some time. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, I wish him luck going back to uh, Costa Rica to spend more time with Joel Campbell's family. It'd be lovely for him. <laughs> All right, I think I think it's your question. Uh, let's have uh, this question is actually on the January transfer window. It comes from Chris Wheeler. He says, "I know the transfer window is now closed, but I wanted to ask one final question, Re Lamar." If the latest media is to be believed and we have agreed a deal in principle for him to come in January, what is stopping us completing the deal now so he arrives on January 1st? Liverpool have done a similar deal for Cater, knowing that the fee is paid and they'll get their player next summer, no questions. The longer we faff around, the more chance we'll mess it up somehow. Uh, yes, um, I, I don't know what the... I don't know what the ins and outs of that story are. I mean, it would be very surprising to me if we had agreed a deal in principle for Thomas Lamar to come in January uh, when Monaco Same. said they're not going to sell. I mean, the reasons why we haven't done it are because, well, we don't have a chief transfer negotiator anymore and we're quite terrible at doing transfers, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I I, I would be really surprised if that were the case. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, obviously what Liverpool did with Cater was very interesting. Um, and it looks like they've got themselves a, a very good deal on a very good player. Um, but I, I, I wonder as well, I mean, every time that guy has a, a poor performance for, for Leipzig, it is Leipzig he plays for, isn't it? It is, Red yeah. Bull. Uh, you know, um, yeah. pe- people will question that. So, I, you know, from, from the selling club's point of view, that's got to be something that they feel like they can manage. Um you know, with someone like Lamar, if there is a deal in place for him to come to Arsenal in January, which I don't think there is, and that becomes public knowledge every time he plays poorly, every time there's a, a, a 50-50 and he doesn't go into it properly, you know, people will, will ask questions of the player. And I think you can do without that as a football club. You know, this speculation over players and their future, I think Monaco have been quite uh, upfront about the way they want to deal with Thomas Lamar and, you know. I, I, I'm I'm just not ready to talk about transfers again yet, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I completely understand that. I completely understand that. I think that the for me it was a it is an interesting thing that Liverpool have done with Cater, but as what's most interesting about it is that they've both been prepared to go public about it. You know, even if you had that agreement in place, uh, surely Red Bull would want to keep it quiet because, as you say, it creates an uncertainty over the player. But uh, I don't think Arsenal have... I don't believe these reports that Arsenal have done anything like that with Lamar. I think that with the transfer market 
fluctuating so much in terms of value, it kind of wouldn't be in Monaco's interest, really, to do a deal at this stage. They'd mm. probably look at it and go, if inflation continues like this, um, he might be worth more in 12 months' time. So I'd be very surprised if they agreed to do a deal any time before the next summer. Mm. All right. This is a question from Azim Ali, at Azim underscore Ali, and we have another one as well just on this. He says, what do we do if Bellerin gets injured or is unavailable? We don't have Justin Hoyt. And uh, Ben, who's uh, Ben Venceremos, says, uh, who should be our reserve right wing back this Thursday and for the rest of the season, should we want or need to rest Bellerin? Well, the obvious answer, I guess, uh, if I'm going to get all aboard the hype train, is Reese Nelson, who, although not a wing back, um, shone in that position in pre-season and I think does have some of the attributes that make him an, an intriguing prospect in that part of the pitch. And, you know, he, he might get some playing time there before eventually adopting a, a different role uh, as he as he matures. But I, that strikes me as an area where he could get a bit of game time. And I would be really excited to see what he could do with the senior team because he's absolutely on fire with the under-23s at the moment. Mm. I mean, I think the obvious answer is Matthew Debushi. Just in terms yeah, sure. of the just in terms of the the experience he has and and the fact that he's still in the squad and is an established right back. I don't know about Debushi as a right wing back though. I don't think I've ever seen him play there. Um or how capable he would be of playing there because it's a very physically demanding role. Because you've got to get up and down the pitch, you've got a lot of ground to cover. And having not played for, what, essentially two years now, Debushi, um, mm. you know, you wonder whether he's physically capable of it. If it was just right back then, perhaps, I guess it depends on how brave Arsene Wenger is. That, yes, Reese Nelson is a very exciting young talent. I think he's much more uh, offensive. And that's something Arsene Wenger said. He said he's a much more offensive player than defensive player, but he's got to learn that side of the game as well. But it really depends how brave he is and how much he thinks... He can he can get from him as a defender in that system. I mean, going forward, clearly there's no issue or no um, no doubt about his talent. But I think he would be much, much, much better as one of the wide players in in the front three rather than as wing back. And I do feel like yeah. cover for Bellerin is an area that is that is still a, a grey area for us. To be honest, Callum Chambers maybe could be an option there. Um, again, I, it's... I'd be very surprised to see Chambers there. I tell you what, there's one kind of left field option. It was, it's maybe less of an option now. But I thought if Arsene Wenger wanted a a conservative option to play at right wing back, um, his hamstring exploded yesterday. But I think Francis Coquelin has done a job there before in France as a wing back. And he's kind of got a lot of stamina. He's a decent tackler. He wouldn't be great in the final third, but if you wanted a defensive player on that side, I think he could do a job there. And it wouldn't surprise me if he he stepped in, if required, if mm. Bellerin was out at some point. Yeah, his hamstring really did go pop, wasn't it? I'm, you know, I'm not that I'm taking any pleasure in it, yeah. but it was an amazing piece of uh, uh, leaping through the air. Uh, by Coquelin. Mm. Obviously, he didn't want to damage it any further, but it was quite funny to watch. I'm sorry, Francis, but, you know, yeah. just the, the sort of dead salmon thing going on was really, it was really impressive. Um, yeah. That's it, yeah. Mm. But, but so, I, I think, well, why don't we 
have a chat. We had a, f- a couple of questions. Joe, who's at Red and White Eleven, said, "What would your elevens look like on Thursday?" Um, what would my eleven look like on Thursday? I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be Ospina and goal. Me too. Yeah. Um, Koscielny is out, so I think he could do something like Mertesacker holding Monreal, maybe, or or Mustafi. Um, is Cam Chambers fit to play? I don't know. I don't know. I saw him in the stands with Rob Holding on Saturday. He was sitting there having a they were having a good old chat together. Uh, but how fit he is, I d- I don't know. Um, Wing backs. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's Kalasinak or who or Monreal, maybe. Um, depending on what he yeah, does. Yeah, that's with a the, tricky one, isn't yeah. it? You you don't want to. I mean, do you think he will play some players who are going to face Chelsea? Do you think there'll be a few? I think there first team guys out there. I think for balance. There, I think there have to be, to be perfectly honest, because it's about how deep the squad is and how much how much we've got in there. Um, right wing back, like we say, we we can't look beyond Hector Bellerin, but he could play Reese Nelson there in midfield. Will El Nenny get a go uh, a game? He should, shouldn't he? I mean, if we're going to rest some players out of Chelsea, it's going to be El Nenny and. I don't know. One of Jack and Ramsey, if if Jack Wilshire is not fit enough yet, um, and a front three, you could see him doing something like Walcott, Iwobi, Giroud, just to keep yeah. his players fit. But I do wonder. I do wonder if he might give Alexis Sanchez some minutes because it's about getting Alexis back up to speed and getting him match fit. He could give him an hour against Cologne from the start and and say, look. Uh, you know, get get those minutes under your belt, and and uh, he could well be in contention then for Chelsea. So, I don't I don't quite know. I mean, it really depends how seriously he's going to take this Europa League. But it's also about maintaining some momentum and making sure that we're not going into the Chelsea game off the back of a a disappointing game against um, against uh, Cologne. I mean, I I also wonder if because it's so early in the season, he might not view fatigue as an issue. And may go a little right. bit stronger than we think. I think your point about Alexis is an interesting one because Alexis isn't really a player who Arsene Wenger ever particularly seeks to keep fresh. He likes him to be in the rhythm of playing games, doesn't he? He likes him to to have that game time under his belt, and you know he plays him every possible minute he can. So I think he's got a good chance of starting. I would probably look at Ospina, Murtasaka, Holding. Maybe Mustafi, say. Mm. Um, the wingbacks are hard. I guess it could be Nelson and maybe Monreal. But you'd think the tricky thing about that is Monreal's probably going to start at centre half, isn't he, against Chelsea? Yeah. Um, if we stick with the back three, then El Nenny and Shaka, maybe. Mm. And then I think a front three of Iwobi, Walcott, and Giroud. Oh, no, I just said Alexis would play. It's hard, actually, and and to be honest, that that makes it quite intriguing, doesn't it? Trying to uh, pick what Arsenal's going to do. It'll give us a lot of clues, certainly, about his team for the weekend as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, James Murphitt, who's at James Murphitt 2, wants to know, will Europa League mean Wenger will lean back towards a back four or will he persist with a back three? I mean, do you think there's any possibility that he might change the system for the European games uh, to, to keep his defensive options a bit more uh, fresh? Maybe. Maybe it certainly would solve the old uh, right wing back question. You know, you could put mm. Debussy or, or Chambers or even Holding in it as a right back rather than a right wing back. But 
Uh, or Mustafi even. But, yeah, I, I, I think... It, I can't see him doing that. He tends to favour consistency in his formations. I think switching to a back four for, you know, once a week, I can't see him doing that. I think it might destabilise. Unless you were going to go with two completely different 11s and not ask players to adapt mm. game in, game out. Um, I, I don't think he'll do that. I think he'll keep it consistent. But oh. as for who actually plays, it is genuinely difficult to, to say. I think it will be a much weaker side. Not weaker, but heavily rotated side, let's say, from the one that faced Bournemouth. All right, here's a question from Payne in the Arsenal, who's at Payne in the Arsenal. And he asks, should Callum Chambers return to central midfield to give the team better balance? And before you answer, here's Arsene Wenger in 2014 talking about Callum Chambers. He says he can play a major role because, in what I observe, he has the qualities to impose himself in this part of the team. I believe he can play in defensive midfield, and that's where I see him. Hmm. Quite definitive, really. Hmm. I mean, in fairness, he spoke a lot about Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain being a central midfielder and almost never played him there either. Uh, but, you know, he saw those qualities in a 19-year-old Callum Chambers um, who he just paid £16 million for from Southampton. So he obviously saw something there that 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 made him say that. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I mean, he's probably said since that he sees him as a right-back and he sees him as a centre-half, but <laughs> I, I think... when what Do you think... Do you see Chambers as a, a holding midfielder? Can you see that in him? It's it's difficult, really. I I kind of think a back three is not a bad thing for Callum Chambers. I think yeah. he would be a decent central defender in a back three, or at the moment, I, I think that's probably where uh, he would fit into this Arsenal side. That there isn't quite the same measure of responsibility as there is in a in a in a central defensive pairing, because you've got another two men alongside you. Um, and, I, you know, I think I was quite excited by Callum Chambers when I saw him come into the team first. And then that Swansea game happened and he seemed to lose confidence. And I don't know that... I don't know that as a football club or as a manager, Arsene Wenger is the greatest at restoring the confidence to young players who he's obviously seen a lot of potential in, A, to buy him and B, to play him. But we, we're maybe seeing something quite similar with Alex Iwobi at this moment in time, right? Where Iwobi... Very much so. You know, was brought into the team. He was a breath of fresh air. He was sparky. He was uh, he was quick. He was fast. He was uh, exciting to watch. There was a lot to like about the way that he played. And like Chambers, he had a, he had a, a period of indifferent form. And I do wonder if we do enough to help those young players get through those periods. That that when they do hit that wall to a certain extent, we kind of go, oh, well, they've hit the wall. Ah, well. Ah, well. <laughs> Throw them on the scrap heap. Throw them on the scrap heap. And it's very rare that a player, a young player, will come through and not have uh, a period like that in their career. And maybe the only one that you would say that didn't is Cesc Fabregas. But Cesc Fabregas was like an exceptional talent, an incredible uh, player from a very early age who became important. And uh, as well as that, was a bit more relied upon than Chambers or Iwobi were. So I wonder if we do enough for these young players when they hit these these periods to sort of say, look, this is normal. 
you're going to have this period of bad form, but let's help you through it. Let's keep your confidence high. Let's get you back in the team and try and restore your own form and your own belief and people's belief in you. Because the longer it goes on, the less people believe in those players. And that's a difficult hurdle for for players to get over as well when they feel like they're not believed in by the manager or by the fans, especially when you're young. You know, you really need people. You need the arm around the shoulder kind of management at times. And I'm not sure we're great at that. Well, listen, I really have high hopes for the Europa League in terms of what it could do uh, for Alex Awobi's confidence. You know, we we spoke about him just then, but he had a really good pre-season, hasn't necessarily managed to translate that into being a regular part of the first team uh, in the first few games. But the Europa League will offer him game time. And I think he's spoken about being determined to make an impact, to try and score goals, create assists. He should get the chance to do that. So I'm quietly optimistic that it could be a really good platform uh, for him to perform. Mm. As for Chambers, I, I don't know about him being in midfield. I'm not sure he's basically. I'm not sure he's technically accomplished enough to make up for his lack of mobility. Like, you know, there have been plenty of central midfielders who haven't been the best at getting up and down. I mean, I can think of Michael Carrick, say at Manchester United, who wasn't the most athletic specimen, but was such an ex- is such an excellent passer of the ball. And I'm not sure Chambers is necessarily that good on the ball that it, it makes up for his, some of his other deficiencies. Mm. He looks to me like a centre-back. Uh, yeah. And I agree that as the as the central member of a back three, he could do really well because it feels like Arsene Wenger wants a ball player there. You know, that's why he, I think he puts Mustafi in the centre rather than Koscielny because he thinks he's marginally better on the ball. And I think Mertesacker, you know, whose distribution is such an underrated part of his game, uh, can play there in the middle as well. I think Chambers could do that role too. And I would like to see that. You know, he had an odd summer where it looked like we were prepared to sell him. Then we sold Gabriel and were prepared to let Mustafi go. Chambers ended up staying. He's got to get some games now. He went to Middlesbrough. He did everything that was asked of him. Now it's time to put that to the test, really, and see see what improvement there has been. Maybe Middlesbrough could, did more to restore his confidence than Arsene Wenger could have done, and, and mm. maybe he'll come back a, a more a more confident player. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to see him get some game time. You know, there's plenty of football to be played in the Europa League, the EFL Cup, and you know we are going to need to future-proof our central defence to a certain extent because of the age profile of a, a couple of uh, the players in there. Certainly, Lauren Koscielny is not getting any younger, nor Nacho Monreal, and we know that uh, Mertesacker is going to be retiring at the end of the season. So I'd like to see him get some chances, and if he doesn't make it, he doesn't make it, but I think... I think he, he deserves a, another crack of the whip at centre-half, particularly in a back three. Um, just as we're talking, Frank De Boer has been sacked as manager of Crystal Palace after four games. Wow. Wow. Well, that's amazing. I mean, literally, I was on the BBC website, uh, BBC Football website, and there's uh, a headline saying, Anal- Analysis, why Palace sacking De Boer now would be madness. <laughs> and that was the main headline on BBC Football. And now they've gone and done it. There you go. Mm. I mean, he did make a very bad start, but uh, that is... I mean, his managerial career must be in, in tatters because I think a, sim- a not-too-dissimilar thing happened to him at Inter Milan, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, he, he didn't last... there after 10, 11 games, I think it was. Yeah, he didn't last very long. You do wonder if, you know, the the issue must be one of personality rather than um, 
football because they, they, all the stories are they're unconvinced by the system that he's trying to play or or the kind of changes that he wants to make. But surely, if you bring in a manager and, and you interview him and he tells you what he what he's going to do with the team, right? Um, mm. You're on board with that, and you've got to give him a chance to implement that. So maybe he's just a, a hard guy to get along with. I don't know. Strange one, though, isn't it? Four games. Maybe. Strange, strange interview process, isn't it? To get somebody in and be that unsure about them that quickly. Um, oh, oh, yeah. and they're going to appoint... They might... Roy Hodgson is going to take over really? at Crystal Palace. Yeah. Oliver Kay from the, uh, the Times is saying, Roy Hodgson firmly expected to be the new Palace manager. Wow, there you go. That's mm. uh, that's the Premier League, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh dear. Um, right, have you got one more? Wow. I just was remembering. I think Frank de Boer was linked with the Arsenal job when during his time at Ajax. Amazing how uh, he did quite well at Ajax, though, didn't he? I think he was. Um, he did. He, he did. seemed to do well, but obviously he had uh, Dennis Bergkamp with him there, and that clearly is is the difference. So. That was the secret all along. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what, we mentioned Per Mertzaka briefly. Oliver Till, who's at Oliver Till 97 on Twitter, says, any chance Per becomes so annoyed with the lack of playing time from Wenger that he does a U-turn on the academy role? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, I'm sure they've had conversations about how much he's going to play this season. Um, you know, I... I, I it, it was... I don't think Sorry, it can... Go on, in. go on, go on. I was just saying, I, I was interested by Mertzaka's comments. I think it was in an interview in The Guardian where he was talking about last season and quite how frustrated he was. You know, it, it felt like there was kind of a, a tacit agreement between player and manager that he wasn't going to really play at the back end of last season. But it turns out he was absolutely chomping at the bit and just couldn't get a look in. And I think he will... You know, as much as this is his last season, he'll be he'll be because of that, he'll be desperate to get some game time under his belt. I think he will have been a bit frustrated to have not played since the community shield. I agree. I agree. I mean there were a couple of games where I thought he would have been absolutely perfect. I mean, the first two games of the season I think he would have been he would have been perfect for, you know, Leicester at home and uh, Stoke away in particular, I think would have been a, a a great game for him to play. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for someone who can organise and who has experience at the back. Uh, we saw that in uh, at Anfield uh, as well, where that would, those were qualities uh, that were very, very much missing. I'm not saying Mertesacker at Anfield would have been the difference or anything like that. But yeah, I read that interview as well, and it, I'm not sure there was tacit agreement that, that he wouldn't be playing very much. I think it was just that he wasn't being picked. He was fit from, mm. you know, January. I think he was on the bench during the Sutton United game in the FA Cup. He was on the bench at that point, but just wasn't being picked. So I don't know that it can be a big surprise to him if he's not being picked, but I guess he would expect, if he's working hard and training hard and on the back of the brilliant performance he had in the FA Cup final, that the manager would have some trust and faith in him if required. I mean, I think he'll play against Cologne. I think he'll play in the Europa League. I think he'll play in the EFL Cup. Um, but I also think he's somebody who can, for certain games in the in the Premier League, I think he can uh I think he can still do a job for us. So um yeah, it's uh yeah, it's a it's a curious situation. But no, I don't think it'll put him off in terms of what he he's gonna do in the future with the Academy. I wouldn't I would be very surprised if it had an impact on that because I think the overall situation must be pretty clear to him. Yeah, 
I think I can't, you know, I can't see him going back on that agreement now. And I think, uh, I think that is a positive thing. I just think it's an interesting season ahead. The Europa League is, uh, he's another for whom the Europa League could be a big competition, you know, a good chance to show, show that he can still be useful at Premier League level. Because I, like you, think he, he can be. It doesn't seem that Arsene Wenger has that conviction, but I think there are definitely games where he'd be a very good option in the Premier League. Mm. All right. Final question today from Sana Jamie, who's at Sana Jamie. And he asks, would you rather be able to run at 100 miles per hour or fly, but only at five miles per hour? Oh, that's a, that is a good question. 100 miles an hour run. I think, I think I've always wanted to fly. Mm. Five miles an hour, how long would it take you to get anywhere, though? How slow is that? It would take you an hour to get five miles, incredibly. Roughly, roughly. Yeah, there or thereabouts. You know, just working it out here in my head, the complex mathematics I didn't know of that. that. You were a mathematician, yeah. <laughs> but how far is five miles? Is what I'm thinking. I don't have a very good gauge on that. So if I wanted to go to watch, you know, so if I wanted to go to Manchester, let's say, to see Arsenal play at Old Trafford, that is how many miles? London to Manchester. I don't know why I would do that to myself, but mm-hmm. that's two hundred miles. Wow. Which is two hundred divided by five is of is obviously forty. So it take you forty hours to get there. Out. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it take you almost two days yeah. to fly there. Whereas I could run it in two hours. But can you run a hundred mile a uh, hundred miles an hour indefinitely, or is that just your top speed? You know, at some point. Great question. Yeah. I think it's in. I think it's indefinite. I think okay. it has to be indefinite for this to be any good. Um, I, God, but I think with the flying thing, you're accepting that you're not really traveling distances. You just have, you're choosing it. Yeah. Yeah. You're choosing it for the power to go up, you know, and and look at things from above. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're still going to have to get on a plane if you want to go anywhere far. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there would be a lot, a lot of fun to be had, um, in running at a hundred miles an hour because you could sort of play pranks on people and, you know, run away really, really fast and they'd never be able to catch you. Um, but you could also probably make a career as a professional athlete. Wow. You'd be like a like a, a mega Theo Walcott. Yeah, exactly. That's that was exactly what it would be like. Mm. I mean, I was thinking I was thinking just sprinting, you know, but by all means, put a ball at That'd get boring, though, after a while, wouldn't it? Being a... Well, I mean, you could... You could uh, you break all the world records in everything, sprinting, middle distance, marathon, the whole lot. But it'd get boring because you'd never have any competition. That's true. Usain Bolt's retired. Yeah. So he can only run about 96 miles an hour, you see. So yeah, I, I think yeah, I'd go yeah. for the flying thing, but I'd be, I'd be sort of, I'd just sort of fly around on my back watching the world go by, you know, that way, like you were swimming, like you were doing the backstroke, just gently That's in the air. It. Watching. Yeah, I, I, I think I the the pace of that life would suit me better. Yeah, yeah. I don't need to get anywhere at hundred miles an hour. You know what I mean? Mm. I'm with you. Life is Let's too see. fast, too hectic as it is. Let's just all fly and be a little bit slower. Yeah, exactly. Take it. Just take a chill pill. See what's up there in the air. Yeah. 
<laughs> it might be nice. It might be nice. Sorry, I was just imagining myself up there. That's why I went quiet. I was like, oh, that would be... Like on a cloud, just floating Yeah, along. just exactly, away from all the mayhem and country that's on the ground. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. <laughs> yeah, five miles an hour flying for me. All right, let's do it. All right, cool. Um, well, look, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening uh, to this Arscast Extra. We'll have another one on Monday when we decide whether or not the curse of James should be reapplied or not. Let's hope they. they yeah. uh, let's hope it doesn't come to that. I am concerned about your, you know, your uh, husbandry. Um, <laughs> you know that that's an important responsibility you've taken on there. So I don't want to be the uh, the one to make a mess of that, unless I really have to, of course. Um, well, look, we'll see. Next week, we decide. Cursed or not. Cursed or not. We will have an Arse cast, but I don't know when this week. Probably later on Friday because we've got this Europa League game on Thursday evening. So it's going to be probably Friday afternoon or maybe Saturday before we have an Arse cast this week, which will be strange. But there you go. That's not our fault. That's the uh, that's the Europa League. Um, join us for that then, and we'll catch you on the next Arse cast Extra next Monday. Cheers. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.